Today on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML. Our uh, weekly discussion right now, this is about death and end of life with our good friends at the uh, Dr. Bob Kemp Hospice. And, of course, uh, to that end, Claire Freeman, Executive Director of the Hospice, is with us once again. Good to see you. Good to see you. And also with us is Dr. Denise Marshall. Pleasure to meet you. Thanks for being here today. My pleasure. Uh, Dr. Marshall is the uh, professor of the Department of uh, Family Medicine, rather, Division of Palliative Care at McMaster University at uh, the David Braley Health Sciences Center. You've you heard the brand-new building downtown? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. It, boy, what a view you've got. It's beautiful. That's, that's a lovely building. Now, we've done a number of things there with our scleroderma uh, group and, and a number of other others that have been down there. But I also want to talk about a project that's near and dear to your heart that we're going to get into in just a couple of seconds about uh, compassionate communities uh, and, and the impact on this. Uh, because I know that sounds like a really quaint phrase to an awful lot of people, but there's a, there, there's, there's a, a logic to what you're talking about here, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a very nice phrase. Who wouldn't want to be a compassionate community? Sure. But it's also a theory of practice. It's an international theory of practice that, that has uh, you know, content and construct to it that says if we do the following things together, we will build this sort of embracing infrastructure where we're all in on death, dying, loss, and, and grief, not just healthcare people, but all of society. So it, it's an actual thing. How does it work? How did you bring it here? And, and, and how is it being accepted? Because as you and I were just talking, well, all three of us just talking before the, the, we started the, the conversation on air here, is we still tend to look at healthcare piecemeal. Mm-hmm. There's this element, this element, this element, and, and uh, certainly politicians do that. But, I mean, we, this is a much more holistic view, isn't it? Yeah. It's really a remembering, if we think of that w- a, a, that way, or returning to the community. The idea of good end-of-life care was never uh, supposed to be about health care owning or taking care of dying well. We were to have a role. And if we're sort of honest, Bill, we would say in the Western world anyways, we probably left the community behind in our quest to build magnificent things. And so this is just a returning to, oh, right, this is first and foremost a community social experience and healthcare has a role. So what we did in Canada is we went across the world and found out that much of the world either, you know, had never left the community behind. Um, Low and middle income countries never have the luxury of magnificent palliative care services. Um, Or Europe, for example, 20 years ago decided that let's let's consciously re-embrace the community in a theory of practice and re-mobilize them. So in Canada, we went over and learned from them and about five years ago, we have been moving this uh, theory and paradigm across Canada. And to your second point, there's been tremendous uptake. Why? I'm going to get into mindset here, and this is something that's been bugging me for a long time. Uh, we, in 1964, when our healthcare system was designed here by the federal government at the time, we were waving the flag and said, this is the best healthcare system in the world. It's fabulous. And, and maybe at that time, it might, it might well have been. Uh, because they were even promised us Pharmacare then. They said, yeah, we're not going to do that right now. We're going to do it in a little while. And of course, it's 2018. We're still waiting for that. But we're lagging behind now. Other people, as you mentioned, Doctor, are doing it much better than we have done it and are continuing to do it right now. We're trying to put duct tape around an old model. And, and places like the Scandinavian countries and the U.K. are way ahead of us right now. Why aren't we learning from them? Or, or is, and this obviously is an example of how we are. But we, we need to do more of that, obviously. Mm-hmm. 
ultimately, I mean, you make such a great point is if we are able, and I think we will be, to um, sort of move the compassionate communities model across Canada and re-embrace the community's role in a good death or good dying experience, we'll find that that will intuitively lead us to the rest of healthcare. I mean, what we would call a good palliative care end-of-life experience, a good death, the palliative approach is the new term, is ultimately just good care. And it has to be an intimate partnership with all sectors of the community, schools, businesses, municipalities. So I, I see we we are finding our way back to a holistic approach. We are a country of community developers. We know how to do that. We just need to consciously stop and reapply that kind of we develop one another. We live in community to palliative care and then the rest of healthcare. So I'm cautiously optimistic. Well, hospice care obviously clears an, an extension of that. Absolutely. I mean, Dr. Kemp, he started uh, by w- noticing that his patients, when he was visiting them in their home, they weren't well supported. And so he basically gathered up a whole bunch of community folks and said, you know, we need to do visiting volunteer and we need to do a day hospice. It was all run by volunteers. It was all the community that was coming in and making meals for families, driving people f- to appointments, all of those. So, I mean, his dream was to really embrace the whole community. But there are there are situations where you, sometimes you just can't be in your home. And so that's probably when you do need a residential hospice. But for the most part, most people can live and die in the community and support it by those they love and care for. But now you're getting into dollars and cents, and I get that. But I mean, the, the old way we used to do it, uh, to your point, doctor, was, okay, when you got to that point where you couldn't stay in your home anymore, Let's go put you in an institutional building. Uh, You get a hospital bed, maybe somebody in your room with you, if not. But we know the challenges that they're facing right now. The level of care is not as good as it should be. Uh, the, the support services aren't the way they should be right now. There's a, there's a, there's a screaming cry and, and need for hospices and more, a lot more of them in this province. It's yes and. I guess my my answer to that is yes, we need more hospice beds. And this current government's been pretty magnificent at at opening more. So so we have that. But to Claire's point, what we would consider to be exemplary end-of-life care that happens in residential hospices in these buildings can and should, uh, to a large extent, be happening in every setting of care, every long-term care facility, every hospital, every Every place that you may age in place or reach uh, uh, the sort of final years of your life should have the same care and compassion and ethos as that residential building. Um, and, and let's be honest, people will always uh, die in hospitals. People will always die in long-term care. So uh, we shouldn't just be reserving the hospice as the place that this goes well. We should be attaching ourselves to one another and learning how, what are you doing in hospice that's so great? How can we move that over to these other settings, including home, uh, assisted living, all, anywhere we might be? That's the next horizon. Well, let's, let's talk about this. This, by the way, just in a related subject, is National Nurses Week. And let's talk about that because yeah. they're, they're the frontline workers in, in a lot of the conversation that we're having here. Uh, and, and most of us are used to institutional care and the kind of work and the great work that nurses do in hospital settings, for instance. Uh, our family experience with hospice care, of course, when my mom was there at, uh, at the Bob Kemp Hospice some years ago, uh, the, the thing that blew us all away as a family was the kind of care that she received and everybody mm-hmm. at the hospice received. It's different. Uh, I'm not going to say it's better, but it's exactly, I put it this way, it's exactly what those people need that are, are, that are mm-hmm. residents in that hospice. It's different from what you're going to get in a hospital, and it's, it's needed. 
Uh, absolutely. And I think that, you know, just like anybody, uh, nurses are drawn to the to the area that they feel their skill sets are best. And there is, you know, there's great ER nurses. Like, you know, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a skill set of being an ER nurse. And thank God for, for those yep. ER nurses because they're amazing. And then there's nurses who are drawn to end-of-life care. And I will say that the ones that go into hospice absolutely are amazing and I love the nurses um, at the Dr. Bob Camp Hospice for what they do and it's not just the pain and symptom management but they actually sit with the family they understand the process they become friends they become friends and, and I think it's beautiful but I do think you know we we can we can expand that out so that again wherever people are um, in the community that they can get that experience I think we're, we're on a horizon to sort of move out and make sure again wherever you are you're going to get the same kind of care yeah, I would echo what Claire said. A measure of success for us as society down the road would be this precious thing with these uh, exemplary nurses in hospice and palliative care. That beautiful thing is is all nurses, all doctors, all healthcare providers, all citizens, all the time. That it's standard curriculum in every nursing school and every medical school. So if you are going into the helping and healing professions of any kind, mm-hmm. this thing that you you ex- witnessed and experienced is all settings and all kinds of care so that's it's going to take a a paradigm shift though from from what we're used Mm -hmm. to how do you how do you enact something like that because uh, the 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 nature of the beast as human beings we don't like change this is the way we've always done it this is the way we should do it hence why the compassionate communities movement which is grassroots it's of the community for the community by the community so powerful Picture what we've done with smoking cessation over the past 25 years. We were all in on that. Everyone, healthcare, society, public relations, all sectors. Picture what we did with HIV and AIDS in the 1980s. That was not healthcare uh, setting up a, a process for care. It was, it was community. It was community engagement. We need the same thing that both healthcare, all, all parts of it, and every citizen are all in. It's both in the system and around the system that we need to pull together to sort of put our, our, our sights on where we want this to go. So if, you're drafting us all into the movement then, aren't uh, you? It yeah, is. Because yeah. uh, I don't want people to think that this is just talking about the, the professionals. Oh, and, no. Because that's obviously going to be a key part of this, but you want everybody to do this. this. The, the tagline internationally is it's everybody's business. Mm-hmm. What hairdresser, taxi driver, Rotarian, church member, faith group member, uh, school or business doesn't need to have a compassionate communities initiative. Uh, time off work because your your spouse has died has a, a powerful impact on the workplace. Everyone needs to know. Everyone, There's always a bereaved person in a workplace. The tagline for schools is death enters the classroom unannounced. It's not on the curriculum or a schedule, but when there's a death in the family, it's in the classroom. So we need policies, we need comfort, we need dialogue. There is no sector of society that doesn't need to be in on this bill. Mm-hmm. Claire and I have had this discussion for for a long time now, but about that attitude, don't we? And and there are some places that do that. I mean, you talk, for instance, about bereavement leave, and uh, yeah. <laughs> but they quantify it. Mm-hmm. Oh, if it's a, if it's a spouse, you get this much time off. If it's this, instead of the mindset, we well, should take as much time as you need. Yeah. Uh, we're yeah. not there yet. Yeah, and I think also if we took a look at you know what the Hamilton Community Foundation did with the Code Red series, you mm-hmm. know uh, around poverty here in Hamilton, and really then they they built hub in the community. So as a as opposed to organizing 
organizations going into the community. They had the community tell us what they needed and then basically wrap those services around and outputs of, of the Code Red and and the, the community hubs. And I think, you know, Hamilton has this model, you know, best place to raise information about death and dying, that this is actually needs to be part of the way in which we build around it. that are going out there. There's no conversation in those hubs around how do people, you know, if they're palliative, how are they getting the best kind of s- support systems and how are we wrapping them around from that? So again, we need to take things out of the medical system and we also have to have the community that's doing community work say, hey, we need to now be partners with the medical system and really bring them really good old, what they used to call public health nursing, right? There's a disconnect even in our public health um services here that we're, we're doing young mothers, we're doing, you know, poverty issues, but there's no agenda for death and dying. And that's what we need to work We, we do some of the stuff anecdotally, I guess, and, and kind of piecemeal, don't we? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, the, the family next door, you know, there's somebody there who's palliative. Well, I'll shovel their snow for them because I know that they can, and that's wonderful. But this is a more coordinated effort. Yeah, this is really making it explicit, uh, um, heightening awareness, and, and actually it should be measurable, too, in the end, Bill. So if people are doing that sort of from time to time, now we'd be saying, why do we not have the equivalent of neighborhood watch yeah. over the frail elderly? Yeah. So that we, we train each other other up. We know what to look for. Frailty can be everybody's business. Everyone can see that Mrs. Jones is not getting out as much anymore. So it's really making it intentional and explicit. It, do we intuitively know how to do it? We do. Now it's just taking the next level. Well, yeah, we have this discussion. I mean, if we have a heat wave or if the, the power goes out, mm-hmm. don't we always say, well, you should look in. If there's a, an elderly family, or check, look in. Why don't you do that every day? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's why I think Canada, where we have a high degree of readiness to do this in a, in a way that's now explicit and measurable and all the time and, and very well known because we're intuitively like that as a people. How do you organize something like this? I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with you. I think there's probably a, an awful lot of people that are listening to this and saying, yeah, we should do that. Mm-hmm. I, I could be part of that. Uh, how do I how do I get this started? Who do I go to? Well, like all of us, we, we sort of read up on it. Yeah. I mean, you could probably go to, you can go to the Bob Kemp website. You can plug into Bob Kemp. Hospices are great hubs to say, where do I start learning more about this? You could just even Google Compassionate Communities, the capital C, Compassionate Communities, and you'd find a, a, a wealth of stuff from around the world on what is it, what's the definition, um, what are they doing on that in Ireland, what are they doing on that in Germany, and figure out, oh, there's an initiative that sounds very similar to my own neighborhood. What if we did something similar to that? So first of all, let's just sort of get informed. Mm -hmm. My worry is sometimes people say, isn't that a nice term? But they never actually go on and read a bit about it to actually, uh, you know, really get a thorough sense of it. So that would be my thing. Let's inform one another. What is this thing? What's it look like, smell like, taste like? Um, How, what could work here? How could we adopt that here? Yeah, we've got it. It's going to take a huge change of attitude, though. I mean, first of all, we've got to get out our front doors a little more often. <laughs> uh, you know, turn off the laptop or whatever it is that we're doing. Um, I, look, I know people that have lived in neighborhoods for like ten years and they don't know who their next door neighbor is, uh, and that never was the case. I mean, everybody used to talk at all times, and uh, that's got to be step one, isn't it? To, to reintroduce yourself to community. To be, if you want to be part of the community, you should know who the community is. Yeah, and community can be many things, right? It can be a geography, a yeah. neighborhood, it can yeah. be a faith group, it can be a cultural group. So 
community self-identify, that would be step number one, is to say, what community or communities do I feel an identity with? Mm -hmm. And within that community, do we know one another? Uh, That's a brilliant first step. And again, it's us remembering to do that, Bill, not that we don't long, long for it and desire that, but we have to have that intentional step. I should be able to identify three or four communities that I feel a deep affinity for. And within that community, say, well, how are we mobilizing about this guess what? Completely universal thing. We're all going to reach end of life. Not just a few of us in the community, 100%. But having folks, I, I know we're just about out of yeah. time, to talk to somebody at the doc, Bob Kim Hospice or a Carpenter Hospice. I mean, yeah. there, are, there are a few that just, you know, go to the web pages. That may be mm-hmm. the best first step. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, it's champions. Just like Dr. Kemp saw the issue and he knew his community. If you're out there and you think, hey, I'd like to do this and I know the community, then yeah, make the call and we can start to make that happen for you. Great conversation, and uh, hopefully we've motivated a few folks to take that next step. Uh, Claire, great to see you again. You as well. Uh, Dr. Uh, Denise Marshall, great to have you here, and congratulations on what you've done so far, and uh, keep doing it. Thank you. Thank you. Want to hear more? Download the podcast on iTunes or Google Play. And listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.